Hello, White Sox fans, and welcome to another edition of Future Sox Podcast. My name is Ian Eskridge. Joining me today is James Fox. How are you doing, James? Great, sir. How's it going? Absolutely wonderful. So uh, it's been ranking season for all of the publications across the uh, internet and uh, major league you know, websites all over the place. Um, today, we are lucky enough to be jo- uh, joined by Joe Doyle from Future Star Series. Uh, let's just go ahead and bring him in right now. How you doing, Joe? Good, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Um, so I guess we'll just uh, go ahead and hop into it. So you are part of uh, Future Star Series site. Um, you just want to go ahead and tell us about the about the platform and what it what it does, and uh, then go ahead and uh, hop into how your guys' ranking system works for the prospects. Yeah, so Future Star Series has been around for quite a while now. Uh, we are a amateur highlighting company. Like we want to highlight the amateur athlete. We do showcases. We do tournaments. Uh, to grow the game, right? And I think over the last couple of years, uh, the site has really tried to expand a little bit into the digital space, start talking a little bit more about um, amateur prospects in, in the scouting report public form, as well as minor league prospects and doing that side of the that side of the house. And it's just to grow awareness to the actual brand. But uh, yeah, I was brought in about a year ago. Um, I did about four and a half years with Prospects Live before that. And the goal is to just continue to push out the same quality content um, as we did, you know, previously. Oh, awesome. Um, so uh, when you guys go ahead and start uh, doing your minor league ranking stuff, um, is there is there a particular uh, point system, how you guys uh, develop what your, uh, your ranking is for each player? Yeah, I think... Our system is going to be a little bit different than what you see at, you know, Pipeline or Baseball America or Fangraphs, you know, and this could, we could tinker with this a little bit going forward, but what we use is role and role is a way to define what a player's, for lack of a better word, role is going to be at the next level. It's on the same 2080 scale that you'll see elsewhere, but instead of using things like ceiling and potential, uh, we want to use a system that is more based around probability. So, for example, if you're a Roll 40 guy, then you're going to be a backup at the major league level or, or a number number five type of a starter on a middling team. If you're a Roll 6 or a 60 grade, you're going to be an all-star level talent. And those guys are going to be a lot uh, more rare. But I think in usage, what makes our scale a little bit different is you're going to see a lot more value placed on proximity and you're going to see more value placed on relievers. And so for that, you're probably going to see guys with big stuff at the upper levels higher on our boards than you would at other places. Or for example, if, if, if there's a first baseman that doesn't project to slug, um, he's probably not going to be very high on our boards. So really it's just, it's a probability and proximity and, most likely case scenario board. So it's going to differ a little bit from, from what you'll see elsewhere. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so before we get into like the overall system and some of the top guys in it, the White Sox recently made two trades. Um, you know, we talked a little bit off air about it. One of them was with uh, your Mariners for anybody that doesn't know you're a Seattle guy. Um, that one, I, I don't know if you, you know, loved that side of it for the White Sox, but I do think you, uh, 
you know, you, you've been a fan of Dominic Fletcher in the past. So just your thoughts on both of those moves that the White Sox made. Well, I mean, I think here, here's the thing with the trade with Seattle. I actually don't hate it. I, I think what Seattle got back, assuming Santos stays healthy, is going to probably outweigh what Chicago pulls in. Now, that being said, uh, you know, you're going to see like um, Prelander Baroa ranked pretty high on the FSS board because he's likely going to be a big leaguer right out of the gate. Um, we have him as a roll 45 guy who, for those of you that don't know, roll 45 for a reliever is going to be someone that is like a middling, uh, mid-leverage reliever, a seventh inning type of a guy. But, you know, we've long written he has the potential to be Gregory Santos, like throws 102, 99 to 102 with a big slider. Like he could be a roll 55 guy in no time. I think it, when I, when I evaluate that trade for Chicago, I think it obviously fully 100% comes down to pick number 69, that comp B pick, you know, being able to add a million dollars to your draft pool for an organization that is resetting or rebuilding or however you want to characterize it. I think is incredibly important and it gives guys like Mike Shirley the chance to take the player that they think they best develop. They are most efficient with. So I think Burrow is a great get. I think he could be every bit of the player that Santos is. I think giving up five years of Gregory Santos for the idea of Prelander Burrow is a little scary. Zach Deloach. Listen, I was a huge fan of him in 2020 when when they drafted him. He was a huge performer on the Cape. He's been essentially the exact same player for four years. There's a lot of strikeout concerns. There's impact concerns with the batted ball data. There's swing and miss. I think he's ultimately probably a fourth outfielder, um, and he could be an up-and-down guy if he doesn't clean up the swing and miss. He's going to be 25 this year. Um, so that's something to, to keep in mind. Dom Fletcher is a guy I've been high on since like 2019. I love Dom Fletcher. I don't think he's a high-ceiling guy. I, I like at best, he's probably Andrew Benintendi, but I comped him to Josh Reddick years and years ago, and that's pretty much what he's turned out to be. Like, he's a he's a fringy, a below average to fringy runner, but the guy can really, really, really hit. There's sneaky power in there, and he's controllable for you know five or six more years now. So I think he immediately slides in uh, to one of the corners. At least they're going to give him every opportunity to be one of the corner guys. It's a shame that Benintendi is already in left field because you pretty much have the carbon copy of him here. But um, yeah, he's, he's a really good player and, you know, you had to give up a pretty good arm to get him, but also there's enormous reliever risk there as well. So I, I, I would make that, that move 10 out of 10 times if I'm Chicago. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of like Brian Bannister influence right now, like in Chicago. So my thought is like with Mena there, like they really haven't been able to, like improve the fastball and maybe Arizona does and the yeah. White Sox regret it. Right. But like he's in triple a, he's super young. We liked him, but it's kind of like you said, like it's probably a number four starter, even if he makes it. So, you know, taking the need there um, is good. The one thing that I, the other thing that I told you that I thought was interesting, Santos has got big time stuff. It's a great ground ball rate. Um, it's not as many strikeouts as you would think. Brian Bannister has traded this man three times now, which is something that I just kind of found interesting. You know, like, I, I don't know if it means anything, but you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like he showed up and saw him and immediately like, Nope, we're not doing this this time either. Yeah. I would say this about Santos, you know, Tampa, the Dodgers, I would throw Seattle into that bucket. I just think there are certain clubs that are best uh, fit to really pull the most out of guy stuff. And Santos, you're talking about a guy that's, you know, 98 to 101, 102 with a 
really a bowling ball sinker that can, you know, break knuckles and that 90 mile an hour slider. It's, you know, I think what's probably going to happen is Seattle's probably going to treat him like they treated Andres Munoz. Like it's going to be 60% sliders, um, maybe backdoor the, the, the sinker and try and figure out a way to command that pitch a little bit better because it's kind of a buckshot scattershot sinker all over the place right now. Um, we'll see what it looks like in a year and a half with Santos, because I think they could probably turn him into the eighth inning or ninth inning guy that he should be despite regardless of, of the uh, strikeout concerns. So we'll see. So you want to move to, uh, the overall, uh, ranking of what you think the white Sox, how the white Sox kind of slot in uh, amongst the major league clubs and, uh, give us just kind of an idea how you, how you perceive the system from from your side of things yeah so the white Sox. i can say this i i personally don't do minor league team rankings i I think it's a futile experiment i I think there's so many things that can happen um over the course of even three weeks that can change the way that a farm system looks but i will say they're one of only three organizations that i had with 22 if 22 guys with a roll 40 grade which for those of you that are, you know aren't on the page right now 20 40 means a big leaguer like straight up 40 means that is a big league player so the fact that that organization has 22 guys that i and jason feel strongly we we feel conviction that they're going to be big leaguers as like a floor says a lot about the organization now i don't think that the white Sox farm system is in a place of of impact right now i think colson montgomery um, has the chance to be a star i frankly i said that he's going to go to multiple all-star games with uh with with our grading system i I think he could be a guy that hits 275 with 30 home runs a year once he finally grows in to that frame of his um, and starts understanding his swing like i think a lot of people anticipate he's going to and backspinning the baseball um but so to answer your question, like, I think there's a ton of depth. There's a ton of talent. There's a ton of contributors in this system. I just don't think the system yet has the guys at the top that you need to push a team from a, you know, a middling, you know, 82, 83, 84 win team to that like 90 win team that requires five, six, seven, you know, impact regulars. I just, the, the system yeah. just seems to be missing that right now. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I think they're somewhere middle of the pack. Like, it doesn't really matter where you rank them. But I think it was just bigger, like, where they came from. Because they were in the bottom with Kansas yeah. City and the Angels in Houston, like, until a bunch of deadline trades and a draft that a lot of people kind of liked. So, like, the system looks a lot different than it did, like, at this time last year. So, yeah, I agree that it lacks, like, the the premium upside. Um throughout but the depth is definitely better uh for the first time in a while so what i'll ask you then is like your thoughts just overall on the chris gets like experience so far so i will say me and ian like we didn't like i didn't love the hire because i just much prefer you to like go outside and do a search right but what i've said is like i don't know that that necessarily means that that chris gets is terrible and it doesn't mean that he's the same as kenny and rick just because he worked there so your thoughts on the hire at the time compared to like now and maybe some of the other guys he's brought in with him. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the optics of the hire publicly are always going to be the guy they hired from within. Like, why would you hire from within? This has been such a, it's been an organization that internally has had so much turmoil. I, I think what people 
struggle to first of all Chris Gretz Chris Getz is a great mind like he's he's more cutting edge than anyone that they've had in a long time in Chicago what I think a lot of people don't understand about the industry is there's so much people speaking over their peers like at the end of the day a lot of times the buck just stops with the guy at the top and those are the, that's the guy making the decisions and everyone around him is in essence a, a, a an advisor right like they don't have responsibilities but to advise and they report up so I think from from a hiring perspective, the optics of it, obviously not what what White Sox fans were probably hoping for. But I think now that we are, you know, a, a decent chunk of time into this, you can kind of see the vision here. Like he's done a lot of good things. He's acquired some really nice players um, over the last few years. He's built out that farm system and, you know, he's done it without moving the big ammo yet, right? Like, I think we would all agree that this farm system is in a much better place. It's like you said, probably middle of the pack. It still needs impact, but you still have Dylan Cease to move at the, at the deadline. If things aren't going your way, I think Luis Robert is still a guy that you can entertain moving for, um, you know, blue chip, a top 10 prospect in the game in July, if, if you need to do that. And I would even say, you know, I I think the team could even bolster the the organization a bit more in July if they're willing to eat, you know, $18 million of what's left from Yohan Moncada's deal. And let's say he's hitting 260 and he's providing some value. There's a lot of teams out there that could use a third baseman who can play a decent defense, hit 260 and 18 homers. And um, if they don't have to pay for it. And, you know, there's some other guys on that roster roster too, like, if you're Chicago, you're obviously hoping for an Aloy Jimenez bounce back. You want him to be a viable DH candidate at the trade deadline too. This this is all to say he has improved this farm system considerably. He's kind of changed the narrative around the organization considerably. And I don't I personally don't even think he's moved his best his best assets yet. And waiting until July when there's going to be a probably a buyer's rush probably in process the best way to go about this thing instead of two bidders you know maybe you have eight bidders for dylan sees pretty good uh one thought i had was you know talking about the the yoan mancata thing is that you know you get those guys on world series teams that are like mid-year pickups that just happen to go on a tear in the last half of the year. And if he's healthy, I don't see any reason why he couldn't do that. And definitely, you know, if they're willing to eat some of that payroll to, uh, you know, bring back some decent prospects for, for something like that, even with his ridiculous contract as it looks now anyway. I mean, just look around the league. Uh, Like Seattle is primed to play Luis Urias and Josh Rojas at third base. If 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 Moncada is having a good year, you don't think Seattle would be interested in in Moncada for the stretch run? You don't think Philly would be interested in having another option um, to put on a corner infield spot with Reese Hoskins gone and Bryce Harper now playing first base? Like there are contenders. We don't know what Boston is going to do. I'm not saying Boston is going to be the best team in the world, but they could surprise some people. And they don't have a great third base option right now. So, uh, well, they have Devers, but you know they lost Justin Turner. They've got they've got a spot at, on the corner infield, I should say. Um, I think teams are always looking for a guy that can hit for cheap uh, in his in his walk year. Like Moncada, I think will end up being a better trade asset than a lot of people expect. Now, I don't think Chicago is going to get a whole lot back because they're going to have to, you know, chew on sixteen to eighteen million dollars just to make that happen. But 
Um, so long as the prerogative isn't simply to get money off the books with that deal, I think you could get back another roll 45 type of a reliever and, um, you know, move him and prepare for the future. You want to move on to the, uh, to the system, James? Yeah. So just, you know, I don't want to get into every guy, but you know, at the top of this system, you know, so the white Sox have been criticized in the past for kind of being so college heavy and not choosing upside, right? And two of the last three years in the first round, it's Colson Montgomery and Noah Schultz. They're at the top of your list and pretty much at the top of everyone's, um, I guess just, you know, some overall thoughts on those two guys leading this system and what they can be. I know you kind of talked about Colson a little bit already. Yeah. I mean, his barrel rates continue to jump. Um, he's continued to, to, uh, when he's healthy, he's continued to look like the plus hitter that I think a lot of people forecast him to be. I still don't think he's getting everything out of his six foot four inch frame. I, I still think he's learning how to backspin the ball and just getting, you know, getting extended time and, and just, you know, just play. Like, I just want the guy to stay healthy so he can show off his tools, you know, get to double a, get in, you know, 250 plate appearances and then go rake in, in Chicago. So, Montgomery is clearly the best shot that Chicago has in this system of, of producing an all-star, at least from this chair. Schultz is just, he's just a really interesting arm. Like it's such good clays, you know, six foot nine. I remember when he was getting drafted out of high school, everyone thought, oh, this is going to be a top 10, top 15 pick. He gets mono. He doesn't pitch like he's barely on the mound and he sneaks into Chicago's lap. James, you and I have talked about the stories behind that pick. Um, they're fascinating, but Chicago loved him from the from the jump. It's it's an absolutely unbelievable slider. It's a, it's it's good against lefties. It's good against righties. It's a nightmare against everyone. And I think if he can get a little bit more value out of his fastball again, this is a guy that hasn't pitched as much as you want to see. Um, you know, it's it's a big tall lefty that could be 97 to 98 when he finally grows into himself with the 70 grade breaking ball. Um, and the changeup is usable. That's a, that's a number two starter in the big leagues. And right now we have him as a, as a role 55, which I think is fairly aggressive. It's a potential all-star impact above average, big league regular. And, um, you know, we are, we are betting on him being at worst, a number three starter with probably uh, a number two starter in his future. How many, We've talked about this a little bit on the show. Like, I, I don't even necessarily care, like, if he gets hit around or whatever. It's, like, all about innings, like, for me. So, yeah. you know, he's had, like, two injuries that were mostly minor, but he's missed time. Um, in a healthy season, what do you think is realistic? 75 innings? He pitched 27 last year. Yeah, that's about what I would aim for. You know, I would shoot for 65 to 80 innings. I don't think you can push him too far. It wouldn't surprise me if Noah is just saved at the complex level until the middle of April just to, you know, lather his workload a little bit. You know, make sure that he's fully healthy, make sure that he's loose and keep him in warm weather so he's not, you know, taking stressful outings out there when in, in the cold. Like, I would be surprised if he went over 80 innings. Um and that would set him up for a nice 2025 season where he could be at double A and, you know, he could throw 130 innings. So yeah, that would be about my cap would be 70 to 80, maybe 85 innings, depending on how strong he's feeling. Um, so see that you've got Jake Eater in the three hole. Um, yeah, that's going to be a hot take than, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah no, I, no, for me personally, like, I had Ramos above both of those pitchers, uh, just personally. Um, but I was 
within a hair of putting Eater in front of Nestrini because I really like uh, his projectability over what Nestrini does. I think Nestrini will probably be, you know, useful for sure. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if he's got the top end, uh, you know, possibilities that Eater has. You want to talk about uh, your thoughts on Jake Eater and, uh, you know, wh- what you see him developing as? Yeah. So going back to the draft, um, I, the stories coming out of Miami when he was selected were there were so many organizations that were mad that Miami snuck in and took him because every I think a lot of people, a lot of teams were banking on being able to pull him down the board just a little bit. And immediately when the draft ended, um, he was like the topic of conversation for like six or seven teams trying to pull him away from Miami, trying to uh, like, can like throw him in in a trade at, at the end of August or at the end of July that year. And I still believe in it. Like he's been up to 98. It's an athletic lefty with a fast arm. The slider wasn't the slider. Wasn't what I think it is going to be last year. It was a lot better in college. It was a lot sharper, but I think it projects a plus slider and he's got a usable changeup that when it's when it's really good it's it's got some parachute and some some tail so i think this is a three pitch lefty like i said up to 98 i, I don't know if it's going to be a a plus fastball i think it's probably going to perform at an above average level but if you give me a an athletic lefty with an above average fastball with budding velocity with a plus slider and a really usable changeup to get righties off of him. I think that has a chance to be a number three starter. Now, listen, he got hit around last year. There's no question about that. He got beat up a little bit. Um, but I still think if you're asking me today, would I rather have Jake Eater or Nick Nestrini or Peyton Pallette or Jonathan Cannon? I would take Eater all day because I think he's got, I think he's got the upside. I think he's still building back arm strength. I think he's getting his endurance back. I think he's figuring a way to, to really kind of get back what he had um, in college and early there. So, you know, I think this is the best pitching prospect outside of Noah Schultz in the organization. And I think he's probably going to make his debut this year. So did you like that trade at last year's deadline then? I loved it. Yeah. I told so you, I, I remember like happened. There were, yeah, there, I told well, you there were happened. a lot of Sox fans that hated it. Then I right away so liked many. it. So, yeah, so <laughs> I loved that deal. I was, I, I, I think I texted you right when it happened. I said, this is the, exactly the type of deal that Chicago needs to be doing. They're, they were so stationary at that point with, with Sheets and with Jimenez and Moncada and Berger and Vaughn. And like, it was the most stationary team, the most DH heavy team that was getting next to nothing in terms of value on the bases. And for me, Jake Berger was like house money. Like this is a guy that, you know, popped his knees and popped his ankles like three times since he was drafted. And yeah, like he finally came onto the scene and he did perform in Miami, but you can only carry so many of those guys on one team. And the idea of, and whoever thought Jake Berger could play third base, that was, (laughs) we'll see if he plays any third base in Miami, but that's not a good look for him. Um, You can't carry Andrew Vaughn and Jake Berger and Eloy Jimenez on the same roster. So being able to flip him, who he's been porcelain for a guy with Eater's upside, that's the type of deal that Chicago needs to be making 100 times out of 100, especially in the window that they're currently in. 
Yeah, so next I want to skip over a bunch of guys and take you to last year's draft. Um, obviously, Jacob Gonzalez was pretty controversial. The second pick was really interesting, though, and nobody knew who this guy was. And again, right away, like I kind of heard from you and some others that either saw him or heard just how loud it was, you know, early before he went down. So, you know, your your thoughts on um, Grant Taylor and then what that maybe looks like this year, because I have some questions on that, too. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to pitch this year. I would be actually kind of surprised if he does pitch this year, but I'm fairly certain that I was the high man on Grant Taylor in the draft. I had him at 59. So, I mean, a lot of people were like, this guy's going to go back to school or he's going to be a you know a fourth-round pick and someone's going to throw him a million bucks. Like, I had him at 59. Like, I had him a day-one guy. I had his, uh, his bullpen uh, track man data. Like, his... Pardon my French. His shit was insane. Like the best stuff outside of Paul Skeens in that program, bar none, not even close. Um, and you're talking about a guy that's big and strong, and it's a reasonably easy operation. It's a shame that he popped because I think he would have been a first round pick if he didn't. Um, but he'll be three to four. He'll touch 97, 98. There's a two seam, there's a cutter, there's a four seam. He'll keep hitters off balance. And then there's, you know, there's the slider, there's the, there's the curveball. But I had scouts telling me in February, like, or, or March, I don't remember what it was. It was leading up to the season, but they were like, this is like, this is like the guy I had teams, organizations coming to me saying, if he's there, probably going to be our pick. I won't say who, but, um, and he was loud on the Cape. Like Grant Taylor was weeks away from showcasing what could have been like top 20 pick stuff. And it's, it's a shame that he got hurt. I thought this was a great pick by the White Sox. I think it's the kind of risk that you take. It's the same thing that they did with Peyton Pallette. Um, and yeah, I think he could be, you know, I don't have him like, I'm not going to be super aggressive with a guy that just popped. I'm going to give him a roll 45, which says he's a, a big leaguer, a potential starter. Um, but I think he could end up being like a number two starter. Like he could be what Cade Horton turned into over that like eight week stretch for Oklahoma. I think that's what would have happened with Grant Taylor. I think he would have shot up boards too. So it was a steal. So I figured we'd move to uh, the 11 through 30 area. Um, do you want to, uh, you have any overall thoughts on, uh, I mean, I know that we've talked about the, the fact that they've got like 22 guys that you've got in that uh, useful major league role are there some guys that you know are there are there uh any of these guys in the the bottom 20 here that you've got your eye on in particular yeah, i mean i think everyone's talking about matthias lacombe i think he's probably going to be the guy that everyone watches this year with with binoculars because i mean that's pretty impressive stuff i don't know much about him i, I really got turned on to him with like two months to go before the draft actually came along i haven't seen him um but the reports that I've seen, you know, other people have written him up. Um, I've watched a little bit of film. He's very interesting. I think Christian Opor is, is, you know, that's the draft and, and sign type of a kid that it's a super athletic uh, delivery from the left side. I think he was up to 96 or 97 with a good breaking ball. I generally really like to buy into guys that are really good movers on the mound. It was the same conversation with Ricky Tiedemann. It was the same conversation with um, trying to remember the left-handed pitcher that the Yankees took in the third round um, out of 
San Diego, I think it was. I can't remember his name now, but it might come to me. Uh, generally, those guys that are really good movers and get into an organization that develop pitchers well, which I'm not saying that's Chicago yet, but they're moving in the right direction. Uh, they're usually guys that pop. Like They, they, they generally uh, move up boards pretty quickly with loud performances. The guy that I really like, I don't know if he's got the highest ceiling, and I think it's representative of his his number forty uh, role here is Seth Keener. Like, I, there are things about Seth Keener that it's easy to fall in love with. Like, he's a huge frame kid. It's elite extension. It's a fastball up to ninety six or ninety seven. He'll he'll live ninety three to ninety four into later innings. I think the slider and the changeup both need work. They both need to uh, tighten up a bit. Maybe get a little bit more firm. It's probably just two average secondaries, but that's a kid that was playing for the best program in the country amongst a ton of very, very good arms and was performing with the best of them. Now, you know, he had to scratch his way into Tuesday starts because Sullivan and Louder and all those other guys were taking the spotlight. So I think he could be a steal from that class. And I, I think the biggest narrative for me with, with this farm system as a whole is you know, you look at Lacombe, you look at Opor, McDougal's healthy now, and, and the reports have been good there. Keener, I like Sean Burke. If he can stay healthy, Cannon. Like, there are so many arms um, that Chicago has right now developing that if, if just two of these guys can take a step forward, you might be able to build out an entire rotation in 2025 with controllable young starters, and that's how you build a competitive window. Yeah. Uh, you got any thoughts, James? No, I think he, you know, he hit that. I know, you know, you wanted to get into, I think we just had like an overall question for you. And I don't know if you can, you know, I don't want you to speak for other people that do what you do. Right. But we're, we're like a little perplexed by Braden Shoemake, like overall. And like the White Sox 40 man right now, it, you know, there's guys that maybe could be easily discarded, but I don't think they want to lose Lenin Sosa, Jose Rodriguez, like those types for nothing, right? Because like they're just, they're on the 40. Shoemake is also on the 40. They have infielders in big league camp that they might have to add to the 40. So just like sorting this whole thing out, you know, you have Braden Shoemake as a future 40 at 21. Others have him ranked in the top 32. Um, he's never really hit like since being drafted. What are your just like, you know, overall thoughts on him and then maybe that potential log jam of kind of the same type of guys? Well, it's, it's all the glove, and that's why, you know, a role can come in a couple of different ways. Like, you look at a guy like Brendan Ryan, who made an entire career for himself hitting 215, 220 with uh, exceptional glove work. That's kind of where we're at with, with Shoemake. Like, that's the definition of why he's at 21 on the board. I would not look at Braden Shoemake as the future shortstop of the Chicago White Sox, but... I would look at Braden Shoemake as potentially the 26th guy on the roster and the glove that is coming off the bench in the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th inning to play shortstop or doing some pinch running or you know batting ninth in a spot start at, at second or third or, 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 uh, or shortstop, of course. But yeah, I think role can come in a number of different ways. And for Shoemake, it's, it's the defensive value. And, you know, I think some people are still curious about the bat there's still some traits and some tools there that uh you'd like to see you know blossom at, at the higher levels of the minors or in the big leagues but i think most of his value is going to come by way of the leather 
So, and I, you know, I can't have you on and not talk about the draft at least a little bit. So um, the White Sox are picking five. We've, we've talked about just because they're picking five, what that means for next year. And it's not great, but you know, we can just talk about them picking five. Um, I recently did a, our first mock draft. That's way too early. And I, I gave him Connor Griffin um, just your overall super early strengths of this class. And then what makes sense for them like early. Yeah, it's a good year for, well, it's a weird year for college bats. Like it's a, it's a good year for college bats to perform. It's not necessarily a good year for dynamic college bats. Like I'm not, you're not going to find a lot of guys that um, are super athletes and can play up the middle of the field. There's a lot of second baseman, first baseman, uh, corner outfielders, things like that. There's, you know, there's no stud shortstop. There's no stud center fielder. There are guys that we think could be that, you know, there are the Seaver Kings there. They are the, uh, the Vance Honeycuts and of course the Connor Griffins. Um, I think what will probably end up happening, and it's a decent year in terms of depth for college pitching. Um, I think what will end up happening is if I'm reading the tea leaves and I'm just projecting out five months, I don't think Connor Griffin's going to be there at five. I tend to think given the low ceiling of some of the guys in this draft, that a team ahead of Chicago will probably take Connor Griffin in the hopes that, you know, he's one of the few guys in this class that has star upside. Um, I don't think Chicago would go for Nick Kurtz. It just seems like, uh, you know, they've been down that road before. Why do it again? And I think Charlie Condon probably falls in the same bucket despite playing the outfield. I could be wrong there. You know, I think in a perfect world, Chicago would probably like to see Bazana or, or JJ Weatherholt fall into their lap. And then as I, you know, look past that, I think Chase Burns is a very, very real option. You know, there are teams at the top, like in front of Chicago, that are always going to be reluctant to take a pitcher in the top four picks. There's just not as much value that can be pulled out of a pitcher. So if I'm forecasting out, my best guess today would be Seaver King or Vance Honeycutt, with Vance Honeycutt probably having the edge if he stays healthy. He's looked good here early in the first two or three games of the season. It's impossible to know what his final line is going to look like, but he's always had the impact uh, tools to, you know, play a plus center field to, you know, hit 25 homers at the next, uh, at the next level and, and be a 245 to 260 hitter. And in this class, you know, getting a guy that can hit 255 at the big leagues with 25 homers and play a, an exceptional center field um, may be the best course of action. So, you know, that, that would be my guess, especially knowing Chris gets like, I think it's probably going to be an impact starting pitcher if one exists or try and find something that plays up the middle that, that can provide um, exceptional value. Yeah. We both yesterday, I think we're tweeting out a uh, video of chase Burns pitching. Uh, he looked pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Impressed. He's a pretty special talent. I do agree though, that like the White Sox aren't going to be one of the teams that's afraid to take the first pitcher. Like if he's the, you know, like I agree. there are some teams in front of them that are just going to go bat no matter what. Um, they they won't be afraid to take a pitcher there. Now, you know, the thing that scare it, it doesn't really scare me because I like believe in Mike Shirley, but I see four first basemen that are, you know, that are like some of the best guys in this class. And I'm just, you know, I'm just like not, interested in that with Kurtz and even even Caglino and like if he's not a two-way guy like he's probably at first right and you know everybody loves Tommy White he's not staying at third so yeah it, you're right like it's it's a lot of like bats that I think fans would like be interested in 
but it's it's first and second base for like a lot of these guys, which isn't great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's big, not a big names. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like the household names. It's the nickname guys. Like it's not a from a scouting perspective. It's not a sexy class. It's like it's an efficient class. It's it's guys that are gonna do some hitting and and not provide a ton of value elsewhere. Like, listen, if JJ Weatherholt or Travis Bazana are there at five and trust me, they could be there at five just because they've been plastered over the top mm-hmm. of everybody's board for the last six months means absolutely nothing. They, they're not, this is all due respect to those guys. Like they're not generational um, types of prospects. Um, if they are there at five, I think they make a lot of sense. They can run, they can slug a little bit. They're pretty good hitters. They can play up the middle. They can play second base. Weatherholt might be able to play a very average shortstop. Um, if one of those guys is there at five, I think that makes a ton of sense for the White Sox organization, not only for taking the best player available, but also taking, taking need. But to your point, James, like if you look at the way Chris Getz has handled this offseason and the way that they've bolstered the farm system over the last nine months, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they went with Chase Burns just because you can never have enough pitching. And we talked about all these arms that they have in the system. I said there's a ton of number four starters here, a ton of them. Chase Burns is not that. Chase Burns might be an ace, and that's one thing that the system is currently like. Like Chase Burns is a better is a better prospect right now than Noah Schultz, if you ask me on February 18th. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. So I mean, speaking of power stuff, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit. Obviously, big time command issues, but like, how many teams would discard like Brody Breck's command issues just to get the the two plus pitches and just think that they can figure out the rest of it? I think I'm actually putting out an article kind of about that tomorrow, wrapping up week one. I think most teams would probably discard him, at least in the top 15 picks. Like I went back to the year 2017 and I looked at the highest walk rate for a player that was drafted Brody Brecht. Now this is his 2023 um, Brody Brecht had almost a 20% walk rate last year, which is like outlandishly high. Um, the next highest that you can find is Shane McClanahan, who was at 14, and he didn't go until 34. And then Hurston Waldrop kind of bucked the trend last year as the uh, only other player to get drafted in the first round with a walk rate over 12%. And that was like 12.4%. So, and some people thought that the Braves overdrafted him where they drafted him. Um, you know, he was a very, very polarizing name. So I think the one thing that McClanahan and Waldrop have in common is they have outlier stuff outlier outlier stuff like McClanahan was 99 from the left side at South Florida we all know what Hurston Waldrop can do and has done in the low minors it's probably if nothing changed and Brett got his his walk rate down into the 15 percent range 14 percent range you know it's six walks this past week um I think Brick probably goes in the 15 to 25 range it is the best stuff that I've ever seen from a college pitcher but he's going to disqualify himself from I think the top 10 or 12 picks with, with, you know, uh, reliever risk like that. Ian, do you have anything else for Joe? I, I'm going to close with a more general draft room question that, that we discussed, but if you have any more questions on the class, go ahead. Uh, not so much, you know, I, I, I kind of share the same feelings, you know, it's just a bunch of first basemen. Um, so I'd be fine with taking a, a power, you know, a big time power arm, uh, if nothing really presents itself uh, to push forward in the uh, prep class. And, uh, you know, if Griffin's not there at that point and he has pushed himself, you know, into top four, you know, all power to him. Uh, and, you know, we don't, we won't see him here, but, uh, you know, I mean, no general questions. Um, 
<laughs> move on, I suppose. So, you know, I've always heard a lot about the White Sox and how dysfunctional it is. And I don't want to get you in trouble, but, you know, just we always hear the stories about the scouting, you know, the scouting staff, like having all their meetings and their board and, and then, you know, like a decision maker, like a Rick Hahn or Ken Williams just comes in and, and, and makes the decision, I guess, like how, how um, common is that like across the sport that you know of, and then just anything specifically like White Sox related where Kenny walks in a room and just takes a guy like after the scouting staff did all this work. So, yeah, I don't want to get in trouble, uh, but I will say, speaking from a 10,000 foot view, just from a from an industry macro, there are a lot of general managers who step in and just make the call. You know, the scouting director and their cross checkers will bring the list of names. Hey, this is who we want to go with. This is what, you know, our scouts like. This is what our model likes. And then the general manager will just make the pick. They'll decide who they want. In fact, um, you know, I, I interviewed Jerry DePoto last year. We sat down for about an hour and we were talking about that. And he said one of the biggest mistakes that he made early in his general management career was thinking he knew everything and not delegating power out to those who do this for 12 months out of the year. And he has not really been, uh, I mean, he's signed off on on guys that, that Scott Hunter selects in Seattle, but he hasn't been involved in the actual like, um, you know, pressing the green button, for example. Um, so I think it's a lot more common than you think. And I think it's not, it's not even so much an issue with, with who the White Sox take as much as they just haven't been able to develop who they have taken. They've, they've landed some good talents. Garrett Crochet has been a disaster in the way that he's been handled. You know, Jacob Gonzalez, I think, you know, the alarm bells are ringing because of the swing and where he was taken, but you know, he was one of the best hitters in college baseball for three years. I have no doubt that he's going to be able to figure it out, but that comes down to player development. You know, you could have told most people on, on the day of the draft, if Jacob, uh, Jacob Gonzalez fell to where he did, that'd be a pretty big steal. Same with like Kyle Teal. He fell. That was a pretty big steal. Um, so it really comes down to organizational messaging. It comes down to cross department, cross functional collaboration. And I don't know if Chicago is quite there yet on the cutting edge of, of the bleeding edge of making sure that um, message lines are clear across the organization. I have spoken with Mike Shirley. I've spoken with some people in, in the White Sox organization. They're good people. They know what they're doing. Um, and now it's just a matter of, you know, tying up loose ends. I'll just put it that way. Got any, any uh, further questions, James? All right. Well, uh, we appreciate your time, Joe, uh, very much. Uh, enjoy the list. Thank you so much. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Twitter at uh, at Joe Doyle MILB. You can find all my work at uh, FutureStarSeries.com. And if you are really into the draft, I do a weekly podcast with um, directors and GMs and scouts that come on and talk about the draft and certain players called Overslot. So, uh, yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Thank you. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Joe. Thank you for uh, hanging out for this episode of Future Socks. Uh, you can find this available on YouTube. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, futuresocks.net. You can find all of our published content, including all of the articles. 
and such. Uh, my name is Ian Eskridge at Daily White Sox. Uh, he is James Fox at James Fox 917. Uh, if you happen to make your way over to our site, uh, you can uh, support us on Patreon, which we would appreciate. Um, and uh, otherwise, you guys have a great time. We appreciate your, your time, and uh, please come and visit us again. Thank you.